come this morning. We want to praise you, God. We want to praise you for being able to look up on the stage this morning and not see the future of the church, but to see the church. Uh, God, not to see teenagers, but to see leaders, to see pastors, to see missionaries, to see those who have called out to a God and he has rescued them, forgiven them, placed them in this place for this time and season for us as a church to pour into them, to help them to grow in their faith. God, for us to launch them into this world. God, we thank you for the privilege. We are honored for the weight and the responsibility you give us as a church to be a part of the lives of these young people's lives, and we thank you. God, we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ, that we sing that he's resurrected, that sing that he is alive, sing also, we sang in our first song, that he is coming back. And we will stand upon that promise even this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated, students. If you can figure out a way to make your way back to your seats. Students, if you get there and you don't have a seat because we gave it away, just find a spot on the floor, all right? Um, As they're making their way down, uh, I just want to say thank you to you again uh, as a church for praying last Sunday. Um, I know Trent already mentioned that this morning. We prayed specifically for our student workers, for salvation moments, and for spiritual commitments. And our student workers and our host homes, if you are a student worker or a host home or a driver, you are incredible people. You've given up your home. You've given up your time. You've given up your gas money. Uh, you've given up your sleep. Amen. Amen. All right. You've given up your sleep, uh, and you're here this morning. But I also want to just thank you. I just want to thank the Lord this morning for some moments where some students this weekend share with some of their student workers, hey, this weekend for the first time ever, I fully grasped the love and the grace of God this weekend. And several students shared that with their, with their student workers. And then one of the, the moments that was shared with me uh, without going into great detail was, I think, modeled by you last Sunday. When you, when you spoke and you prayed together as a congregation, you, you set an example for our students that that is what we should be doing as a church. And during one of our invitations, uh, one of the evenings, uh, last evening during D weekend, one of our young men just began praying in his seat, kneeling where he was, um, and a bunch of young men surrounded him and laid hands on him and prayed for him. Uh, and that is a beautiful picture. Uh, that's, a, that's a goosebump kind of moment um, for us as a church, for you to realize. And, and so I want, I want to say thank you as a church I want to thank you for allowing the music to be a little bit louder and the lights to be a little bit brighter. Um, because, listen, if we don't share the gospel of Jesus Christ in a profound way in these live students, the world around us will do everything they can to pull us from them. They will do everything they can to pull us and pull them from the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we will, without apology, do whatever we've got to do to ensure, to teach, to train our preschoolers, our children, our students, so that they understand that they have a mission to shape this community by sharing the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I want to thank you as a church for believing in that and being a part of that. Now, over this weekend, they have, they've looked at the story of the prodigal son and an idea called Comeback. And Matt Bryant, one of our associate pastors, shared, and a couple of his thoughts were these, that uh, what area of pride do you need to overcome in order to come back? What sin is in your life that's preventing you from coming back into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ? And for the realization that God is waiting for you to come back into that relationship. And they've examined the story of the prodigal son uh, and, and through that passage of scripture inside and out over the last 
uh, three sessions that they've had. But one of the most intriguing aspects of that story that I think we often don't look at, and I was shown this a couple of years ago, is that the word prodigal actually has two definitions. The word prodigal has two definitions. One definition is to spend resources recklessly. Now, when you read the story of the prodigal son, that's the capital, that's the title that's usually in most of your Bibles that wasn't there when Scripture was written. It was added by us so we can kind of know what's going on. But in that story, we say, oh, it's the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the reckless son who went out in this parable and spent everything that his father had given him. There's a second meaning to the word prodigal, and it's important for our message today in 2 Peter. The second definition of prodigal is someone who spends extravagantly on someone else. So there's two prodigals in this story, students. There's the prodigal son who recklessly spent everything that had been given him, and there is a prodigal father, and he was waiting for the return of his son. He was going to lavishly, extravagantly pour out. And this story, this parable, is dependent on the prodigal father. Without the prodigal father, there is no story here. There's no parable. There's no ending here. And this morning, I want us to see this beautiful story of a lavish father, of a lavish God who's made a promise to all of us that we can stand upon and we see in 2 Peter. So if you've got your Bibles, we're, we're back in 2 Peter. Surprise, surprise. We'll be there for a few more weeks. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. Chapter 1, we examine what does an authentic believer look like? How do they respond? How do they grow in their faith? Peter's teaching the early church. How do they grow in their faith? In chapter 2, we look for two weeks at what is a false teacher, a false prophet. What is their message? And so, so far, we've looked at these two things. But again, remember, remember, Peter's at the end of his life. He's experienced Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He, he, he stuck his foot in his mouth a couple times in front of Jesus. He was called out by Jesus. But he also was a leader of the movement after Jesus had left this earth. He's an eyewitness of the miracles of Jesus. And so now... In chapter 3, he really turns our attention a little bit this morning. And he even does it with the words that he uses to start. Chapter 3, verse 1, he said, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Don't you like that? I mean, he's been pretty hard, chapter 1 and 2. He's been barrel both loaded in, in, in the second chapter. He just unleashes on them. And then he comes to the beginning of chapter 3 and he says, Hey, I'm writing to you, beloved. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of, hey, I love you. I, I want you to listen. And what he's also doing is that for two chapters, he's been going pretty hard. And now the beginning of chapter 3, he gives us some terminology and he gives an introduction to kind of pull them back in. If they've turned their ears off, he's going to encourage them to start. In verse 2, he says, in both of them, referring to both letters, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of Reminder, I'm stirring up your sincere mind, your pure mind. He's complimenting them. He's encouraging them. He's bringing them back into the conversation if they have checked out. Students, I know you're going to be prone to checking out this morning, all right? Student workers, you're definitely going to be prone to checking out this morning, all right? So you are my beloved this morning, all right? You guys stick with us as we walk through this passage this morning. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind. 
It's the difference between trying to give instruction to a child. If, you, if you're angry with them and then try to give them instruction, it doesn't work. If you are patient with them and you praise them and then give them instruction, you're much more prone to get results. This is what Peter's doing. I'm going to encourage them. And then he's going to give them instruction. He could have whispered chapter 3 to them after his introduction. And here's what he says. So important, these verses this morning. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. What Peter's doing here, if you're not picking up on it, he's uniting scripture, Old Testament and New. He says, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and our Savior of the apostles. So the Old Testament as we covered in the, in the very beginning of this discussion, the Old Testament points to and the prophecies point to the coming of Jesus Christ. The Gospels tell the story of Jesus Christ. And now the apostles are telling and taking the story of Jesus Christ to mankind. And so he's unifying all of Scripture for us before he talks about and gives his new reminders that he's so good at doing in Second Peter. And here's what he's going to say to them. There's going to be two ways that people are going to attack your faith. There's going to be two ways that scoffers, meaning mockers, those are going to poke at your faith, to mock your faith, to make fun of your faith. There's two specific ways that they're going to go at your faith. And this is applicable to us today as well as it was 2,000 years ago. He says in verse 4, here's how they're going to do it. They will say, where is the promise of his coming For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now that may not sound like much to you, but this morning I want us to pull these words apart and for us to dive into them and to see that they are incredibly important. The first thing they are going to mock is where is this coming Jesus? Jesus had foretold. He said, listen, I'm going to leave this place, I'm going to ascend, but one day I'm going to return again. And so the New Testament, the believers, they continued to preach. Over 250 references in the New Testament are made to the return of Jesus Christ. But now it's been 30 years and Jesus hasn't returned. And so the first thing they're going to start to do, the mockers and the scoffers, they're going to say, hey, listen, you're Jesus, where is he? He made some promises. If they can discredit the teaching of Jesus, then they can shift the power of the movement. Understand what's really at root here. If they can take this one promise and break it apart, then they can begin to attack the validity of Jesus and the validity of this, validity of this entire movement that's taken place. The second thing he talks about, we'll look at this in a minute. He says, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, meaning they died, All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Here's what they're saying, guys. Church, Christians, people live, people die. Things have been the same ever since creation. Your God's not doing anything. Nothing's happening any different. They're mocking in this moment the power and the position of God. First, they're going to attack the validity of Jesus and his promises. And now they're going to say, listen, your God's not all that. 
Since creation, people have been living, people have been dying. What's any different? Here's what they're doing. If they can discredit the teaching of Jesus and then the position of God, then they can silence a movement. And this is still the case today. In our culture and in our churches, if we silence the promises of Jesus Christ and we undermine the position and the power of God, this is so important for us this morning, and if we undermine the position and the power of God, then we begin to silence this message that we have. So he gives them ways to argue back, to have the discussion in these two areas, the validity of Jesus and the creation and the power of God. So we're going to look at these. He does this a little bit different for Peter. He argues the the latter first. First thing we must see this morning, we must reject those who mock God's authority as creator and sustainer. This is what they're after in verse 4. Make no doubt about it. They're after that God is a creator, that God is a sustainer, that God can be a judge. In verse 5, it says this. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. The scoffers, the mockers, they overlooked this fact. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. And through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that had been that had been existed, was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He's realizing that one of the primary ways that the scoffers 2,000 years ago would undermine the power of God is they would undermine the God as a creator. There is a theory, this is a teaching that is attacked every day in our culture. Your textbooks from little until adults, your promotion, your history channel, everything is pointing in these moments to tear apart the validity of this God as a creator. Some of you are going to leave this place, and when I make this next statement, you're going to leave this place, you're going to say, no, I can't buy into it. They are attacking that God was the creator of the universe. They are attacking that God could do anything else in the universe anymore. They're saying, what good is he? What power does he have? Genesis chapter 1, verse 6 through 8 says, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let us separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and he separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. Peter is referring to, and he's reminding the early church, you need to reject anyone who mocks the authority of God as the creator and sustainer because Peter knows and he's tying together. He says that from the water and the waters and he's he's recurring and he's going back and he's looking at Genesis and he's pulling all this in here together for the believers to say, listen, God is and was the creator. God is and was the sustainer of all that is. And God can judge and God can bring judgment upon this world. He brought the floods before. He can do it again. They, he says, at the beginning of verse 5, he says, 
for they deliberately overlook this fact. They're just skipping over history. They're just skipping over the, the, the choice and the examination of God as creator. And some of you have pushed that idea aside to buy into what the world has taught. And let me just challenge you this morning. If you want to choose another way to believe in creation, then your belief requires way more belief than mine. Because mine stands upon God as creator. Mine equates for all the things that took place in history. And Peter is saying, listen, if anybody refutes God as the creator and sustainer, they're mocking our faith. Because if they'll mock the creator, then they'll mock that God can judge. They'll mock that God can bring consequences. This is not just an attack on the authority of the creator God, but it is an attack on God as judge, God as sustainer. The second thing he talks about, it's actually the first thing he talks about, if you can kind of remember that, that we need to address here this morning is we must reject those who mock the promises of Jesus Christ. The promise was made by Jesus. And here's the promise. Jesus made the promise that one day he would return. That one day he will return. He'll conquer for all eternity the brokenness of this world. He'll destroy the enemy. And he'll bring through destruction, he'll bring a new creation. This was the message of Jesus. This is what Jesus proclaimed. That one day he would return. He would judge. He would destroy. And a new creation would come. This is what scripture teaches. This is what Jesus teaches. Jesus said, then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. The scoffers, the false teachers, here's what they're saying. 30 years later, Jesus hasn't done this. So Jesus must have been wrong. 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. Jesus must have been wrong. He must, his promises, therefore, aren't valid. His power, his validity. Let's just discredit Jesus. There's a lot at stake here this morning. And what's at stake is a, a lavish promise of a patient God. What's really going on is they're trying to discredit who Jesus was. And we live in a culture that is trying to do the same. But verse 8, he says something. He says, but do not overlook this one fact. Now he's arguing against their scoffing, their mocking that Jesus, his promises weren't valid. He says in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. There he is again. Love you guys. Encouragement. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Huh? Y'all haven't had much sleep. It's kind of hard to wrestle with, right? One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. When our children were little and we would travel somewhere, they would ask this question, how much longer, right? Parents, grandparents, siblings, you know this? 
And you'll say, six hours. Fifteen minutes later. How much longer? And you say, fifteen minutes less than what I told you the last time? An hour later. Realistic. Five minutes later. How much longer? Your perception of time as an adult is different than the perception of time as a five-year-old. The same thing happens if you tell a five-year-old their birthday is coming soon. They wake up the next morning and say, is today my birthday? And by soon, you meant three months. Same thing. The perception of time of what we view and what God views is very different in our finite minds. Same thing happens if you're waiting in a waiting room and someone you love is having surgery. One moment seems like a million years, does it not? And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you keep looking at the clock, and you can hear it tick, and you're looking at it, and you're thinking, that was five minutes? No, that wasn't five minutes. That was five hours. Surely that was five hours. Our measurement of time, Peter is saying, and the movement is based on our limited, small knowledge. But this is fundamental. This is a fundamental problem. Please listen to me this morning. Peter is saying to these guys, you don't get it at all. To the scoffers, to the mockers, you don't understand what's going on at all, do you? You're mocking the faith. You're mocking the teachers of the faith. Why? Because Jesus hasn't returned. And you say, well, that means Jesus doesn't know what he was talking about. In verse 9, he gives one of the most powerful sentences for us in Scripture. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This was an aha verse for me this week, a kind of blow my mind, and I hope I can expound upon this to bring you along this journey with me this morning. The critics were trying to silence the movement of Jesus by saying Jesus did not know what he was saying. Jesus had to be wrong. Where is he? He hasn't shown back up. And in reality, what Peter says is they're thinking incorrectly. They're thinking that God is slow. They're thinking that God can't fulfill his promises. But what Peter says is God is not missing his cue. God is not late. God is patient. And there's a drastic difference between Jesus being wrong in his promise and a patient God who is waiting. And what is he waiting for? It says in Scripture, he does not wish that any should perish and all would come to repentance. They were mocking the patience of God that was being extended to them. You get that this morning? They were mocking that Jesus hasn't returned and the reality hasn't returned because he's desiring for them to come to repentance. They've got this all wrong. They've got it all twisted. They've got it all turned around. God was actually giving more time for them to give their lives in repentance. And all they could think of was Jesus is late. 
No, God is patient. This is the ultimate comeback. It's the lavish promise of a patient God. In the Old Testament, Joseph. You go back and read his story in the Old Testament. Joseph, an incredible hero of the faith. Joseph was in put into uh, imprisonment, he was put into slavery, he was put into bondage, he was put into prison, and at one point for two years, he was waiting for someone to call upon him for two years, and another point he was waiting for another couple of years, and, and they looked upon him and said, gosh, Joshua, God must have got this wrong. And Joshua replied, what the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. He trusted And a patient God. In the Old Testament, the people of God, they waited 400 years for freedom. Was God late? No, he was patient. He was waiting for repentance. From the silence of the Old Testament to the coming of new. 400 years. Then Jesus comes. He arrives on the scene. And scripture says, was Jesus late? No, Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. At the right moment, God sent his his son. Jesus was never late. He was right on time. And the scoffers and the mockers of our faith will say, the promises of Jesus aren't true. He's missed on some of those. No, he is patiently waiting for their return to Jesus. He's patiently waiting upon repentance. God is not slow. He is patiently waiting. And God's waiting for some of you. As adults and students to come back. Only God knows the hour of the day of the return of Jesus Christ. He is patiently offering hope and repentance to you. He's not late. He's patiently waiting for you to surrender your life to Him. He's not late, He's not slow. His silence doesn't mean He's not moving. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Peter says, have no fear. He's coming. And when he comes, it's going to be unexpected. It's going to be quick. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be full of consequence and judgment. He's going to come. Have no doubt. He's not late in his comeback. He's patiently waiting. And he will come like a thief in the night. December 21st was an interesting day at our house. At 5 a.m., we were awakened by a sound at our house. Loud boom. Crash. Boom. Loud. Call 911. Police cars go flying by my house. I live out in the country, folks, all right? This is a true story. I didn't make this up. I got pictures right here, all right? I got them. 911, little did I know what was happening outside my house. There was a police chase, four-mile police chase, and it ended in my backyard. For real. The car was about eight feet from my son's bedroom. He drove through our front yard hit about eight or ten trees, knocked them around, flipped the car around, got out of the car, took a blanket with him. It's six degrees outside. Takes a blanket with him, crawls about 15 feet, and patiently waits for seven sheriffs to come and arrest him. 
At one point at 5 a.m., I had seven sheriffs, two ambulances, and one fire truck in my front yard. If somebody wanted to make up a story about what was happening in the pastor's home that night, it was a perfect moment. And I'm going to tell you what, it scared us to death. For hours and for days, we kept thinking about this moment. As we were cleaning up all the mess and taking out all the trees and removing all the debris. Just like that, our day was changed. And scripture says, Peter says, listen, God, God's going to return. Jesus Christ is going to return. And when he comes, it's not going to be, he's not going to introduce himself and say, hey, I'm here. No, it's going to be like a thief and he's going to come and the heavens will pass with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The planets and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. God is not late. Verse 9, but he is waiting patiently. So that none would perish to come to repentance. And see, here's the danger. If we discredit the promises of Jesus Christ and the power of God as a creator and sustainer, then what we're doing is we're moving towards skepticism. This is what they were undermining. If we can undermine Jesus' promises, if we can undermine God as creator, then we can shift this entire movement away from faith and towards skepticism. God is not late. He is patiently waiting for some of you today to repent and turn to him. Do you trust the promises of Jesus Christ? Do you trust the promise that Jesus Christ lived and died as a savior? payment for your sins and that yes one day he will return and no we can't calculate the time we can't calculate the hour even Jesus told us we can't do that do we trust the power of God as creator and sustainer Peter is raising the importance of God's word from cover to cover from the beginning to the end God is creator God is judge God is sustainer And it is time that we trust God's word completely. Do you trust the promises of Jesus Christ and the power of God as creator? Have you placed your trust in a patient God? Today is your day to do it. Because as verse 9 tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In your bulletins this morning, there's a sentence. And it reads like this. God is patient toward blank, a place for your name. Not wishing that blank, your name, should perish, but that blank should reach repentance. God is patient toward Michael Bowers, not wishing that he should perish, but that Michael should reach repentance. This is for you this morning. Don't mock the truth and the promises of Jesus. 
Don't scoff at the God as creator and sustainer. He's not slow, but he's waiting. Will you respond in today? Let's pray this morning.